Hello and welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I am an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado. The goal of this podcast is to connect, learn, and inspire. In this podcast, you'll be hearing from OMS surgeons all over the globe discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. Most information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement what you learn here with approved research studies. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, and register to receive newsletters and find links to our social media accounts. Most importantly, if you'd like to be interviewed on the podcast or know someone who you'd like to hear from, or if there's a topic you'd like to hear about, please email me at grantstuckey at gmail.com. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. Brian Carr. He's an oral maxillofacial surgery resident at Parkland in Dallas. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. Could you just start by giving us a brief history of your your background and your current training? Yeah. So uh, originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I went to a small liberal arts school in Minnesota and then found my way over to University of Pennsylvania for dental school and then National Oral Surgery Residency in uh, 2019 and started at Parkland and then went to UT Southwestern there for med school and uh, now currently in my fifth year. Nice. And how's it been going overall? No, good. Fifth year is kind of known as our our busiest year. A lot of learning, but yeah, very busy. Enjoy working with Dr. Sleevey. Yeah, he's he's a great mentor. One of my, we're actually from the same hometown, he and I. So we, we nice. grew up five minutes away from each other in Mequon, Wisconsin. So he always says it's the reason why he let me into the program. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's awesome. Well, good. One of our listeners reached out and recommended I get you on the podcast just to talk a little bit about kind of your your practice and your newsletter that you got going on. Can you just talk a little bit about the newsletter? Yeah. And first off, incredible thanks to Jason for recommending me. He's been a great resident and really, really fun to work with. When I was a first year in residency, we always get told by our senior residents or our faculty to read more, but no one ever tells us necessarily what to read, or they say read Atlas or read articles. And, you know, I, I kind of took it upon myself and I was like, what should we read? What should I read? So I started reading one article related to oral surgery a day. And I got that from a mentor I had back in undergrad and organic chemistry uh, teacher that initially convinced me to go and get a PhD in organic chemistry. And she said, in order to be an expert on a field, read one article every day about that field. And I didn't choose to go the organic chemistry pathway in oral surgery and dentistry. I found it just kind of helpful to read an article a day. It doesn't need to be long, but just you know, a couple pages here and there really helps. And through my co-residents, they're like, hey, if you read an article, just send it over to me. So I just started texting it out every day. I'd read an article and text it out. And eventually, more people in my residency wanted to get involved. And the text thread became an email chain. And then the article just became a summary of the article because not many people want to click on the article and just read the whole article. They just want to read the, the pertinent details. So I try to just summarize one article related to oral surgery every day in about like a thousand words or less bullet point format of purpose, what they're trying to do, how they did it, and just kind of a key takeaway I always put at the top. If you're busy and you don't have time to read the whole thing, just two or three kind of heavy hitters just to to leave you with. And it, it's been great. A lot of faculty got involved with it as well. I mean, Dr. Schlieve, he contributes his comments to it. So they'll respond to everyone on the chain. And 
give their two cents about a topic that interests them. Uh, Dr. Finza, a huge contributor to that as well. I mean, he has a wealth of knowledge about our whole field. He wrote a lot of the initial articles about oral surgery. And it's always great because he serves as a great litmus test for what constitutes a good article or a bad article and why. Dr. Zuniga also has been known to contribute as well. Dr. Tawana is on as well, and he, he gets involved. So it's really nice to have these experts in the field that I don't necessarily train with that are contributing to the article as well and to get their perspective about it. Yeah, that's great. And can anyone be part of the newsletter? Is it just for residents of Parkland right now or? No, it's, it's everyone. So right now there's over 150 people that I guess, quote unquote, subscribe to it that are on the email chain. And there are residents from University of Washington, University of Florida, University of San Antonio. There's dental students in New York on it, faculty from Penn, faculty from San Antonio, uh, faculty from Oklahoma. It's kind of anyone can join. Uh, it's completely free of charge. And it, it's just something that I think helps everyone get better. A lot of the articles that we discover, I mean, this last week, my co-resident and I were discussing ramus fractures. And we're like, yeah, we don't really see a lot of these. We don't want to treat a lot of these. So the shout out to him to, you know, we found a couple articles and just discussed it. Uh, something that really, you know, a lot of the conversations and topics are chosen based on our case experiences or articles people recommend would be a good one. So it's always great to have more voices and more people involved. Yeah, that's great. And the newsletter is called Soapbox. Is that right? Yeah. When it initially started, my other co-resident, we're all pretty close to the five of us. And he's like, man, this is your, your personal soapbox, isn't it? So I, I kind of leaned into it and said, well, that's a great name for it. So I just, from then on, have called it the soapbox. And, uh, you know, it's not my own personal soapbox. You know, a lot of faculty get on it as well, but it, it's just been good to just hear a lot from the experts on the field as well about it. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you have criteria for which articles you review or is it just like, random articles or how does that work? Yeah, I, I try to keep like a theme for a couple of days. So last week, there was a lot of uh, TMJ total drone placement articles. And a lot of times, you know, I'll ask faculty if there's a good article out there that I should send out. If not, I'll go to science director Scopus and see, you know, if certain articles are very highly cited or, you know, recommended and I'll, I'll go with those. Tomorrow, I'm sending out one about Clear celadongenic carcinoma, and it's an article by a group from MassGen that you know has been highly rated about a very rare topic. So, for the direction, it, I kind of just choose it every week, but it's usually based off of something I either see or hear or conversations I have with faculty or other residents. Nice. How long does it take you a while to create the newsletter or the the summary? It takes about an hour a day, more or less. I try to knock out if it's like a, a slow day or something a couple at a time just to get ahead because on busy OR days, it's kind of hard to do a newsletter in between cases. Yeah, it usually takes about an hour per article. Okay, have you figured out how to involve chat GPT to make this streamlined? <laughs> <laughs> I, ha I haven't yet. They get a little finicky about like just the copyright infringement of, of articles. But you know, I, I think too, just reading it and just summarizing some, some key points is, is beneficial to me as well, just because I read it through it a couple of times and it kind of hammers home some of the points in my head as well. Very cool. Has any of this reviewing articles and seeing people's comments, has it changed your, your practice at all or does it involve the way you're treating patients? It, it has. I think the, the great contributor, Dr. Finn, he always is very critical of any article that's sent out, especially the ones he comments on. So and he always kind of takes like a counterpoint to it whenever he critiques it. It kind of is just, you know, indicative of residency in general where you might learn or read something one way. And then a faculty can comment and just, you know, completely blow it up and say, that's wrong. Maybe it's this way instead. So, you know, there's a, a 
great dichotomy there that exists that, you know, um, you kind of can learn multiple ways just by reading one article that, you know, just because it's stated this way in the article doesn't necessarily mean it has to be true. The other way can work as well. Nice. Dr. Workman, who recommended you, said that you have a, quote, exceptional ability to integrate evidence-based practices into your clinical care. That's pretty cool. How are you able to do that? Just from a lot of what I read, I try to incorporate it to how I practice. One of the recent ones I got into discussion with a certain faculty or not is when you're doing an IV sedation and taking out their molars, especially in the maxilla, do you block the greater palatine nerve? And there's one article, it's a really interesting one, it's just three pages out of a group from Turkey that they just gave somebody like uh, two cc's of articane in the maxilla, just on the buckle, didn't numb up the palate at all. And they found that in 96% of patients, they didn't need to give any palatal anesthesia. So, you know, I've, I've started since then to just not give any greater palatine blocks during IV sedations. And I haven't had any patients, you know, respond poorly to not having that numbed up. And that's just one thing that I've talked to other faculty too. And some faculty are very adamant about numbing up the, the greater palatine. Some are like, no, you don't necessarily need to, but it's just kind of interesting, you know, navigating that. And it's definitely changed my practice that just based off of reading all that. The patients that were in this article from Turkey, were those all under sedation or were any of these local or? It was actually all local okay. and it was a prospective study as well. And they had essentially two groups, you know, one that had greater palatine plus buccal infiltration compared to just buccal infiltration. And they just, you know, monitored their pain levels throughout the beginning, middle and end of the procedure. And there was no significant difference between those who got a greater palatine block, except those who had greater palatine block had more pain at the beginning than the people that didn't get one. So interesting. I talked to some faculty as well, and they think that, or not think, but when you inject in the greater palatines after you sedate somebody, it could you know, put them into a quote unquote bad mood. And, you know, it can cause the sedation to maybe go sideways or awry a little bit um, just because you've now kind of hypersensitized them to pain in that region. Yeah, I've seen that for sure. I also think there's a contingent of patients who, especially um, high sensitive gag patients that once you numb it, they have this like hyperactive response and they feel like they need to gag even more. And they're like, it's hard for their brain to comprehend that it's just numbing and I have something back on my throat and they feel like, they yeah, it's all numb. And yeah. They didn't like that. So it, it's, that's just one way. And a lot of the TNJ articles with that Dr. Zuniga comments on as well, it's, you know, what do you inject in a total joint? You know, like is hyaluronic acid good or beneficial is PRP is just regular Kenalog. And with Dr. Zuniga, his quotes are always, you know, you can't necessarily justify any of these advanced adjuncts and especially the cost of it, you know, Kenalog costs dollars on the vial compared to some of the other treatments that cost a couple hundred. And there might be some minor benefit to using a more expensive adjunct, but does it really be, you know, just regular arthrocentesis with irrigation and Kenalog? So it's been interesting to get their input on that as well. And it, it definitely changes the way you think about practicing, not only thinking about what's best for the patient, but what also is what's economical for the patient as well. Hey guys, real quick, KLS Martin is offering a 35% discount on my favorite KLS Martin instruments for everyday oral surgery listeners. So there's a link um, in the podcast notes with a full listing and a video highlighting some of the advantages of using KLS Martin instrumentation. Uh, to utilize this offer, use promo code STUKIFAVES with a capital S and a capital F. So capital S, lowercase T-U-C-K-I, capital F, lowercase A-V-S. 
And you can use that through your Kalos Martin sales rep or by emailing usa at kalosmartin.com. I handpicked these instruments based on the kind of favorite extraction instruments that I use on a daily basis. And um, I hope you enjoy them. What you know, recommendations do you have for people who want to read more articles and synthesize them in like a streamlined, quick way? That's a tough one. I mean, it just it starts with just getting into the habit of trying to read a couple pages a day. It doesn't need to be an entire article. And then after you're done reading an article, just taking a step back and just thinking about like what did I just read? And a lot of times, and this the research purists might be angry at this, is just don't read the methods at the beginning. Just kind of read like the main highlights of the article. You don't even need to read like the entire results. But, you know, just focusing in on some of the key details and the discussion and conclusion. And then if it's something that interests you, go back and look at, like, how do they do the study? And, you know, and like, how do they design it? And what were the results? What, what did they find that was statistically significant? But I think a lot of times it can be overwhelming if you try to just do it all at once rather than just breaking up into little, little tidbits. Yeah, that's a good point. Have you been a part of any research yourself there at Parkland yet? Or? Yeah, I, uh, as a dental student, I started out doing research at the the VA in Philadelphia with Dr. Uh, Panchal and Dr. Ford. And we were able to get a couple publications out there. And then when I came to Parkland, I did some more research with Dr. Finn at the VA on implants. We combined databases and are currently working on just a, a big retrospective cohort study between both institutions. Did a couple articles on uh, with the anesthesia team on uh, orthognathic surgery and how that affects the airway after advancement. And does the laryngeal grade improve? Does the difficulty in intubation decrease? And it's actually interesting, and kind of, if you think about it, quite obvious that if you take someone that's class two and make them class one, it's easier for them to get intubated at a subsequent surgery. Just because the laryngeal grade changes, it goes from about like a grade 2B to 1, and then the uh, intubation difficulty and the use of adjuncts decreases as well. That is cool. Any changes you've made to your, other than the injection, to your extraction of uh, third molars from the articles you've read? I think just on some of the articles I've read too, one, one's an interesting one. It's kind of like a meta-analysis of do you primarily close third molar extraction sites or let them heal secondarily? And it was interesting to see that if you close an extraction socket primarily, sometimes you can get the, the one-way valve effect and it can, you know, suck liquid water debris in, but not necessarily push it out and can actually cause more pain and swelling afterwards. Whereas if you just kind of loosely reapproximate the tissue and if something that I talked with my attending Dr. O today, I was like, you know, do you want me to close this primarily? Because I usually just defer to the attending's wishes a lot of times. And he said, no, you know, I don't like the, the one-way valve effect. Just, you know, let it like, kind of heal secondarily. And that's something, too, I, I kind of believe in, especially if you're in a prior practice setting and you don't want to necessarily get calls from patients about pain and swelling. It can really be not necessarily a practice builder, but can save time on your hands as well. Yeah. Yeah, we've had multiple people talk about that on the podcast. And that's certainly what I've kind of transitioned to over the last few years is smaller flaps and then just really not suturing most of them especially if they you know fall into place on their own and i I really have noticed that and starting to like kind of keep a log of this but when i do even just a single suture threochromic there's way more reports of pain and issues with that it's an interesting find Mm -hmm. yeah another one yeah another one too is i know i started out I guess the first year making a, a bigger flap, like you said, and making it interdental up to maybe the 
mesial of the first or sorry, the distal of the first molar, but now I just kind of do a small little V flap and you kind of release it at the distal of the second molar and kind of down to the mucogingival junction. I found that it's definitely less swelling post-op for a lot of patients when you make that small little flap. And I think, you know, I, I talked to one of my seniors one time and he says, you're not cutting into as much of the underlying muscle layer as well. So it can really help patients recover faster. Yeah. I actually have a podcast coming up about that with someone else with oh, nice. <laughs> talking, talking about how far you extend that incision when you're doing third molars. If you, because it came up because my brother was talking to me about how certain people that he's around will release always that papilla between the first and second molar and there's some art there's just not great articles that talk about that some even say that there's no difference yeah but certainly for me if i have released that in the past it just is a bigger pocket so the more debris gets in there more likely to have dry socket pain so i always just go right to the buckle basically right to the mid buckle of the second molar and that's where i end my incision yeah and very few complaints about that very nice well, this is a great topic and it's good to hear that you're able to go through so many articles quickly in an efficient manner. How do people join the newsletter? Do they need to email you or how does that happen? Yeah, email, text, anything. Um, you can put my email or phone number in your in it and they can just email me if they want to join. The eventual goal is to turn into a, a CE course for all the academics and prior practice people out there to get some quick, easy CE credit. But yeah, I'm not board certified awesome. yet or graduated yet. So I don't know if I'm the I'm the authority on the topic yet. <laughs> right. But hey, you're doing a good job as the middleman. I like that. And then my last question in regards to this is so Dr. Sleevy, aka Triple D, the dead bone doctor of Dallas, have have you done a lot of articles on Emrange and that topic? Tried to. You know, we a couple of times I sent out the the Amos White paper. No, I think one topic, and it's something in Dr. Schlieve's practice that that we'll do a lot, and there is some evidence for it, but kind of controversial is, you know, you're bringing down the dead bone to healthy bleeding bone, putting in PRP, and he actually does a unique way of closing where he'll put in some platelet fibrin and then close with 3-O-chromic, and then over that, over so with 3-O-proline, and then on top of that, putting on some uh, autologous fibrin sealer. So like some TIS seal or just from the patient's own body, and I've done probably a dozen or so, a couple dozen cases with Dr. Shalevi, and we've seen a lot of good outcomes with patients on that. There is a lot of research on to seal and tissue sealers, especially when you're looking at bone healing, that they can really enhance bone healing, especially if you want to graft at the same time, not that you should graft with people with osteonecrosis, but the times when you want to graft for certain cases, using tissue sealer can really help with osteogenesis. Oh, that's cool. That's great. What a great resource. All right, time for the rapid fire questions. The first one is, what's the best book you've read in the past year? Uh, Think Again by Adam Grant. Almost done with it. Got like two or three pages left. But essentially, it talks about how you can rethink old trains of thought and how you don't want to trap yourself into an overconfidence cycle. And one of the quotes that sticks with me, and it's, again, pretty indicative of medicine, is just the, the roots of humility. And, you know, residency is a very humbling experience. And the roots just mean to stay grounded. So, you know, having humility in residency, learning new things, learning new ways to do things, it's it's not, you're not necessarily, you should be embarrassed by it, but you should be humbled and stay grounded. There's always a, another way out there to do something. That's a good book. I've read that as well. What non-oral surgery thing do you do 
in your life that's helping you with your daily oral surgery skills? Yoga. Nice. I do yoga a couple of times a week. Um, I actually do with one of the faculty I take called at Presby. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way. One, for your back, because we take horrible care of our back. And two, just taking an hour or so out of the day just to zone in, focus on your breathing, just decompress a little bit. I found it to be very helpful. What forceps do you use to extract tooth number 13? Tooth number 13. I'll just do like a regular 151. Nice. Okay. Or um, just the upper universal is what you're saying? Yeah, upper universal. 150, I think. I I can never remember the number. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's good stuff. Okay. And then um, favorite movie or TV series that you're watching? Or maybe you don't have time to watch anything. Something that I made my my wife watch, she never watched it, but True Detective, specifically season one with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Thought it was a great show. Seasons two through four, not not great so far. Especially season four, not great so far. But season one, I thought was like the best show on television. What platform is that on? I think it's on HBO. HBO, okay. I'll have to check that I, out. I heard her confirm. She did she give me a thumbs up. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. And then favorite quotes that you have? Is there any good quotes that you've heard lately that you like? Yeah, it's actually one by F. Scott Fitzgerald um, going back. But he says that the mark of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time while still retaining the ability to function. And if that's not about residency, I don't know what is. You know, you're, you have <laughs> exactly. to always hold multiple I guess, you know, you also have to be a, a battle with your own thoughts sometimes, you know, especially with an attending that you might have worked with one day and then a different attending the other day is like, why are you doing it that way? And you're like, oh, I, you're right. Sorry. And still having enthusiasm, smiling and not getting frustrated by it, I think is, is a mark of a good intelligence. That's a good, that's a good one. You wrote The Great Gatsby, right? Yep. That's a, that's a great author. Okay. Yeah, that sums it up really well, residency. That's one of the hardest part, I feel like, is dealing with all those various opinions and everyone's got their own way and you kind of trying to appease everyone and, and the things <laughs> <laughs> that they're doing. Yeah. But being a sponge as well and trying to soak in all the good parts that everyone's got to offer and and not being too closed-minded is important. So. All right, cool. Well, if you don't mind, I'll put some of your contact information in the show notes and whoever wants to join this great newsletter can. Yeah. And hopefully we get a few more added. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being on. Thanks, Brian. Have a good evening. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. For more information on these podcasts, please visit everydayoralsurgery.com. I love feedback and would be very grateful if you would reach out to me via my email grantstukey at gmail.com and let me know what you thought of this episode or you can text me at 720-441-6059 additionally if you have any topics you'd like to hear about or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast please please email or text me i found many of my interviewees through people who have been contacting me and i've been listening and i've gotten so many great uh, ideas for more podcasts and that's what helps keep keep the podcast rolling so really appreciate you making that extra effort and helping me out with uh, feedback and knowing what to do next on the podcast thank you so much Mm -hmm.